Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Paul Ortiz, director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program and author of Emancipation Betrayed. Oral history really underwent a renaissance in the 1960s and early 70s. We'll talk with a loyal Miami Dolphins fan who's been there since the team's very first game. Seats one and two on the 50-yard line. A theatrical production tells the story of Glades County, that and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. The first modern historians of Western culture, the ancient Greeks Herodotus and Thucydides, relied on eyewitness accounts of historical events to inform their analysis and interpretation of the past and explain its impact on the present. Many tribal cultures around the world rely exclusively on oral history, passing stories of the past from generation to generation. Dr. Paul Ortiz is director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida, which was established in 1967. Samuel Proctor was an amazing historian and scholar at the University of Florida. Uh, Sam began his academic career really in studying the life and history of Governor Napoleon Bonaparte Broward. And he, at the time that Sam was doing his research in, in the 40s and 50s, Governor Broward's papers were actually in the family house in Jacksonville. And as Sam was rifling through the papers, old family friends would come in and visit and would say, hey, what are you doing? And Sam would tell them what he had been doing and or what he was doing at the time. And he started writing down these, these recollections that people had about Governor Broward. And that's really how Sam started an oral history. He founded our program in 1967. And we are a, uh, both a research, a teaching um, arm of the University of Florida. What we do is we train graduate students and undergraduates on how to do oral history interviews with Floridians, uh, both famous but non-famous, uh, throughout the state and region. And increasingly, we have really have become a national program. We do oral histories all across the country. One of our most recent ones actually was done with an individual in the Dominican Republic. And so... We try to focus on, on Florida history, but, but we've expanded from there, in part because Florida, as you know, is a nexus for the entire world. Uh, we have a lot of people here, first-generation folks from the Caribbean, from Latin America, from Africa, from Europe. And so 
just by virtue of being a cosmopolitan state, we have become increasingly a cosmopolitan uh, research unit. What we do once we have those oral histories is we really try to both preserve and promote them. And thanks to digital technology, we try to make those available via podcasts. Uh, we have a YouTube channel. Our biggest end users are public school teachers, high school teachers. And so we spend a lot of time giving talks about how to use our materials in the classroom. With a vast collection of recorded and transcribed interviews, the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program has one of the largest oral history archives in the world. As Paul Ortiz explains, the interviews cover a wide range of subjects. Well, one of the, the focal points in recent years has been in African American history. And we want to build an archive in African American history and really uh, shine a light on the work that our colleagues at the University of Central Florida, University of South Florida, Miami, and other universities have been doing. As you know, African-American history in the state has really undergone a resurgence or renaissance in the past 10 to 15 years. So African-American history is a big subject area, especially the histories of Jim Crow, the civil rights era in Florida. Uh, environmental history is another major area of interest. Uh, we have almost 100 interviews uh, with experts who, uh, who were employed by the Florida Water Management Districts who talk about water usage issues. Another subject area of strength uh, is in Florida political and uh, business leadership as well. It really, we're a student-driven research unit. So the, the direction our graduate students and undergraduates go, uh, we'll conduct interviews in those areas. And so we have a collection of over 5,000 oral history interviews. People call us on a regular basis and ask us, do you have an interview in, in this topic? Uh, the history of Florida architecture? Do you have interviews in, in the history of oceanic science? Do you have interviews in the history of, of, uh, of beauticians in Florida? I've never had to say no. Uh, I can always point someone uh, to, to at least a group of interviews in almost any topic you can imagine. And again, that's a testament to the work of Sam Proctor and then my predecessor, uh, Julian Pleasance, who is the director um, after Sam uh, retired. Although historians have been incorporating oral histories into their work for 25 centuries, it's really been over the past half century that oral history collection has become more formalized and therefore more widely accepted as a valid research tool. Oral history really uh, underwent a renaissance in the 1960s and early 70s. The people who really drove that scholarly renaissance were people like Jacqueline Dad Hall, the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, uh, Don Ritchie, uh, who now is working in D.C., the folks at Columbia University. A lot of these people had been very involved in movement politics in the 1960s, in the women's movement, in the civil rights movement, in the uh, anti-war movement in, in, uh, uh, in Vietnam. And so you had folks who, who were coming back to graduate school after being in the movement and trying to learn or understand or figure out the histories of the people that they'd just been working with and finding very little of that material in the academy in existing archives and saying, well, if we can't find a lot of, of material on the history of women's rights struggles, we're going to have to generate it. We're going to have to create it. And so that was a huge impetus behind the, the, the development of oral history in the 60s and 70s. It, be, it became, it kind of started um, as a rumination, if you will, on the, the huge changes that were occurring in American politics. And from there, you know, the second, third generation folks like, like myself, uh, again, many of us came to the academy after working as in, in nonprofits, as advocates, as social movement activists. 
and we we had a belief, uh, almost a moral belief, if you will, that it's important for us in the academy to stay in contact with people who are in these communities around us that really nurture our universities and our colleges. We need to find out what their viewpoints, what their perspectives are. They're not well represented in, in the history books, whether you're talking about African Americans, working class white folks, women in general, are still very marginal in many of our textbooks. And so oral history becomes a great tool to, to, to bring them in, and not just in a little sidebar, but trying to make their, their lives and histories and stories central to our understanding of the development of our, of our state. In addition to serving as director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida, Paul Ortiz is an active collector of oral histories himself. Ortiz compiled more than 150 interviews as research coordinator for the project Behind the Veil, documenting African-American life in the Jim Crow South. This was my graduate fellowship, if you, if you can believe it. It was, it was such an amazing experience at Duke. And it was really a project that was anchored by John Hope Franklin and Leon Litwack. And their, their charge to historians was that we have a lot of material and oral histories of the slavery period, you know, thanks to the WPA work and people like Stetson Kennedy and Zora Neale Hurston and others. We have a lot of great oral history work on the civil rights movement. Now remember, Litwack and Franklin were saying this in, in the late 1980s. They said, isn't it ironic that we have so little on the period in between, the Jim Crow era? That's where we really have this resource problem. And so they put the charge out there, and a, a group of professors at Duke, North Carolina Central University, and UNC really came together and said, okay, how do we begin a major oral history project Southwide? Um, how do we gather as many oral histories with African-American elders about their experiences, not in the civil rights era so much, but really in the Jim Crow era? That was the impetus for the project. And so as a graduate student, that's how I ended up in the state of Florida, because my professor sent me here as part of a three-person team of graduate students, and we worked out of the Black Archives in the, the direction of James Eton at Florida A&M, doing interviews the summer after the Rosewood hearings. It was so, uh, you know, history, the, the pain, uh, the anguish. Every day you open a newspaper, there was letters to the editor about Rosewood. There were people saying, we need to, to put this story out, we need to highlight it. Other people said, that's history, we need to get beyond it. And so there's this incredible dialogue about history, and we just stumbled upon this. And so that, it was through the Behind the Veil project, it was an NEH-funded project, that I initially um, ended up in, in Florida. And, and once I arrived here in 1994, I was really hooked by the fact that so many African-Americans were, were willing to, to really take me in and, and tell me their stories. Many of the stories are very, very painful. Uh, there were stories of, of, of loss, of lynching, of, of despair, but also there was these tremendous stories of survival, of resilience, uh, and everything in between. And it was really, uh, it's the kind of experience you get from, uh, the only other field I can think of is literature. If you read uh, Toni Morrison's Beloved, if you read William Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury, the kind of passion and tragedy and triumph in the literature um, was really in, in, in people's stories.
The Behind the Veil project led to a book co-edited by Ortiz called "Remembering Jim Crow: African Americans Tell About Life in the Segregated South." Paul Ortiz is also author of the award-winning book "Emancipation Betrayed: The Hidden History of Black Organizing and White Violence in Florida from Reconstruction to the Bloody Election of 1920." African Americans never. Silently take their disenfranchisement. They, they, in other words, they never agree with the premise that they should not have the right of political participation,、um, and so they do one of two things. One is they take elements of democracy、um, and they bring them and try to incorporate them into their their own civic and fraternal organizations, like the Knights of Pythias or. Um, the Masons and those organizations and and churches as well are places where white folks really don't have much access at all, and so you find that the Knights of Pythias, you find that the Masons, you find that other fraternal orders become places where black Floridians can continue to practice a kind of politics. They can continue to do things like vote, they can formulate bylaws, but most importantly, develop social and political relationships with each other. That really come to fruition in what's the apex of the story that I tell in Emancipation Betrayed, the voter registration movement of 1919-1920. By then, you have World War One. You have a large number of African Americans who say that you know we 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 supported this war for democracy abroad. Now we want democracy in Florida. At the same time, you have people like Frank Clark, you have Sidney Katz. Not about to voluntarily give people their suffrage rights just because they died in the war, and in fact, Frank Clark infamously, to his eternal discredit, made the following statement about black soldiers in France. He said, "No more black soldiers died in France than in a normal race riot."、Uh, and it was such. When I read that as as a, as a military veteran myself, I am ashamed. Uh, Clark said it in public. He was an elected official here. It gives you a sense for what African Americans had to deal with in the state of Florida. Dr. Paul Ortiz is director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida and author of the book Emancipation Betrayed. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Established in 1856, the Florida Historical Society is the oldest existing cultural organization in the state, but we are not funded by the state. Find out more about the great work we do at myfloridahistory.org. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. 
1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features Bonnie McEwen, Director of Archaeology at Mission San Luis, Tallahassee. During Spanish colonial times, Franciscan missionaries often had a particularly close relationship to the native people. They saw themselves as the protectors of Indians, whom they tended to view as childlike. Friars often defended their native charges against abuses of Spanish soldiers and civilians. Conversely, since Franciscans took vows of poverty, they depended on their native parishioners to provide many of their basic needs, such as food and shelter. The Indians taught the missionaries native customs and languages, and also assisted with religious instruction and services. In one incident at Mission San Luis, two Appalachian leaders were shackled and imprisoned by the deputy governor. They told other Appalachians to get word to the friar. The missionaries secured their release, thus averting a possible crisis. Bonnie McEwen is Director of Archaeology at Mission San Luis, Tallahassee. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Miami Dolphins lost Super Bowl VI in 1971, but in 1972 became the first NFL team to have a perfect season, winning Super Bowl VII. The Dolphins also won Super Bowl VIII and played in Super Bowls XVII and XIX. As Janie Gould reports, when the Miami Dolphins played their first game in 1966, 87-year-old Hazeltine Knickerbocker and her late husband Bruce were there. The couple lived in Miami. They usually drove to the Orange Bowl, which was in a residential area near downtown. There were lots of homes around the Orange Bowl, and yeah. people sometimes charged people $5, $10, $20, or whatever, to park in their yards for the games. What did you do? Well, we had a friend that lived near the Orange Bowl, and he didn't charge us anything. He was real good. What was the team like in the early days, in the mid-60s, before Don Shula? I had never been to a professional game. My husband, being from Iowa, he was close to the northern cities, Chicago, Chicago Bears. And he loved professional football. Professional football was really late coming to Florida. Yes, it was late, but everybody loved it. It was always a filled stadium. You went to every home game, just about? We never miss. How much were tickets? Oh, dear. Oh, I think I found a ticket the other day. I'm trying to clean out the garage. $7.50. You're still going to games at the age of 87. You didn't go this year, but you went the season before. How much are you paying these days? $98 a ticket. Seats one and two on the 50-yard line. There's a story behind how we got those seats, if you want to hear about it. Was this in the Orange Bowl? No, no. This was when Mr. Robbie built the new stadium. When we first started, we were on about the 30-yard line and up about row 46, which was still good. And then Mr. Robbie, when he finished the stadium, 
we received a letter from Mr. Robbie asking if we had any preference. This, of course, was Joe Robbie, the uh, former owner of the Dolphins. We uh, wrote back, and I was going to use psychology on him. I said, anything you do is fine with us. So we ended up on row 28, seats 1 and 2, 50-yard line. Couldn't get much better than that. No, we were real happy, and I've had that seat ever since. You remember, of course, the uh, 1972 season. You went to all the games that season, and you were living in Miami Springs, where Don Shula lived and where a lot of the players came. Yes. One of the defensive linemen on that 72 team, he was president of the Christian Association of National Football Players, and every time he signed one of the children's program, he put a song from the Bible in it. They were all good guys. Nick Bonacani, Dick Anderson, those boys stop and talk to you anytime you wanted to talk. You used to see them Friday nights before games. Yes, Don Shula went out to Miami Springs Villas, and uh, we waited for them to come out, and we'd talk to them, and they'd talk to us. You have a favorite player from that era? Oh, gee. We loved all those boys, but I always got a kick out of Larry Zonka. He had a home up in North Carolina where I have a home. <laughs> Everybody up there knew Larry. The Dolphins have had their ups and downs since 1972, but you've stuck with them. Yeah, I never lost faith in them, and I still think they're good. They got a good deal going now. They're going to do it. They just have to get everything together, I guess. When are you going to go to another game? Well, I don't know. The Pro Bowl's coming up. I got tickets to that, and I don't know who's going to be in there. It's not the Dolphins, unfortunately. You still like to go to the games. Oh, gosh, yeah. It's a good thing. Keeps you going. Hazeltine Knickerbocker often shares her tickets with her sons, grandsons, or a neighbor who helps her with chores around the house. Janie Gould spoke with loyal Miami Dolphins fan Hazeltine Knickerbocker, who has been supporting the team since its creation in This is Florida Frontiers. Bill Dudley reports on a theatrical production that tells the story of Glades County. When I'm on the water, no matter what's going on in my life, I'm focused on those green creatures I'm trying to catch. I've always been able to do that. I started when I was six years old. I taught myself how to fish. You got the Actor Akeen Babatunde speaks the words of a citizen of rural Glades County, part of a theater production that uses oral histories of the people in this region along the western shore of Lake Okeechobee. It just struck us that Glades County is such a different place, and it might be a very rich environment for collecting stories and creating a music theater piece. Project director Margot Emery represents the Core Ensemble, a South Florida-based chamber music group that has played in schools and glades and other counties as part of state enrichment programs. In 2007, she envisioned combining music with the words of glades citizens. The object was to allow people here to gain an appreciation of their own heritage. Project workers visited homes, churches, schools, even the Seminole Indian Reservation, collecting stories and personal recollections. We talked to family members of the original pioneers, the people who run the Mexican restaurant, a man who's been a janitor in the school system for years and years, teachers' aides, you know, a whole big diversity of people. 
I remember my grandparents. They pioneered here in the early 1900s and brought all their children. My grandfather came with two of his brothers and they tried to hold out a place to make a living. So it was a real struggle for them. They were farmers. Named for the nearby Everglades, Glades County today has a population of less than 3,000 households. There are large African-American and Hispanic communities, and most people here work in cattle, citrus, or sugarcane. Just under 2,000 people live in Moorhaven, the county seat, and the only town of any size. It's only an hour 15 minutes from West Palm Beach. It's an hour and a half from Miami. It's close to kind of the areas of Florida that have undergone as great a change as anywhere in the nation in the last say, 50 years, and this area has not. This area has kept much of the same pace and rhythm that it's had for quite a long time. While Florida State historian Andrew Frank helped fill in some of the early history of this part of the state, project leaders felt the best way to preserve Glades County's more recent past was by talking to those who had lived it. And what came out is that people really, I think they came to realize that their stories were really part of history and that they were worthy to be preserved and worthy to be celebrated in a performance in the high school auditorium. And many people made the comment, you know, this is great, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so many more stories. And of course, that was our challenge, was sifting through all those great stories. Several of the people that I spoke with and several people I've spoken with in other communities, they will often say, well, my story doesn't matter. You should talk to so-and-so, and I'll point to the booster, the entrepreneur, the politician that is the mayor's story, or the person who was the town doctor for years. They're the stories that matter, and your regular person doesn't matter. And so this program was in large part to open people's eyes to a different reality. We were able to look at the distant past and sort of highlight that against the more recent histories that we collected from the people in Glades County. My name is Shorty Garcia. I am in my 70s, born in Veracruz, Mexico. I believe when I arrived here, I was the only Hispanic in this town. Even when we think about what is Florida history, we, you always have to make choices of what you will include and therefore what you will exclude. And traditionally, small towns, for various reasons, get omitted, especially once you get to the 20th century. From a Florida historian's point of view, the great themes in Florida history are those that hug the coastlines or go to Orlando. It's not really the, the small town reality of what Florida was, say, 80, 100 years ago. Frank says recognizing the contributions of ordinary people is part of a larger movement in American academia. The fear from the professional historical point of view is if you tell stories and you tell histories about the past that don't resonate with people because it's not their experience, it's not even close to their experience, what they know is in complete contradiction to what you're saying, history feels false. Historian Andrew Frank. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.